I want to I want to begin by telling you about where I live now. Um, since when Andrea and I moved here, we live uh, we lived south on, on the south part of town, and we lived in this uh, we lived in this cul-de-sac, and our house was here, so we had this lot, and right beside on the corner of our lot we had this because there was a a pond behind us, we had this culvert that kind of went there so that when it rained in our neighborhood, the water would run down our street and here's my driveway, right? My driveway's here, my lawn's here. And uh, it would just puddle like this right here. And I don't know if you remember, but a number of years ago, we were down in Woodland Trails on the far side of the town and they didn't do a good job. I know you're wondering, so why are you telling us this? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, so basically, they, I guess they didn't do a good job like figuring out in terms of how things are going to work. And so all the mud and all the junk from the, uh, the phase two and phase three that were happening up above would kind of trickle down. I have friends that lived up in phase two and we called ours like, ours was like the, the slum area of Woodland Trail. So we were at the very bottom. And so all their, all their red Oklahoma dirt would kind of roll down and then just literally have this huge mound of red dirt right in front of our driveway. It drove me crazy. And so what I decided to do was just get a broom and every time it would rain, you can see why I'm going with this maybe. So every time it would rain, I would just get out and I would just push it. And it would be pouring rain, me and my son would get out there. Actually, I kind of liked doing it. I thought it was kind of fun actually. I liked kind of cleaning up that area. So I just push, push, push and all that red dirt that would kind of come up would slowly trickle down and all the red dirt would be gone and it would be clean and probably took maybe an hour of my time, but it really wasn't the end of the world. And so I kind of thought it was fun. Over time, they went back and they re-engineered the whole top part. And so now it never happened again. But I don't know if I really cared, never complained about it actually, never complained. I mean, it's just, just the way it is. Red dirt's going to kind of trickle down. I guess it's my job since I live there to do my part to kind of clean up. Well, we bought a new house, we sold that house, and we just recently moved, and so uh, we now live closer to the church. We used to live what we called Texas, now we live more like in, in Iowa, uh, although the good news is the church is on the south part of Iowa. So well, here we are, uh, we just live over here in Parkview, so it's really, really close to the church. And um, we live in this cul-de-sac that kind of goes, you're wondering, why did I erase that last one? I don't know. So we live in this cul-de-sac, and our house is now back over here in this area, and so my driveway is over here, and there is a ravine, but there's no, like, concrete culvert here. And so now whenever it rains, Keith and Phyllis live right here, and we've got other friends from the church live in other places, but Keith and Phyllis live here, and there is this, like, this grassy area that kind of goes back. And so when I got home today, there was this huge puddle that was right, like, here with dirt in it. And I just thought to myself, I was on staff retreat earlier this week, and so when I got home, I thought, well, I better get my broom. And so I got a shovel and a broom, and um, since it's, there's no real culvert there, I just started kind of digging out some of, the, some, of the, some of the grass that had formed there and one of the reasons why the puddle was. And I was just kind of, my dad used to always do this. My dad would see stuff like this and would think it was the coolest thing in the world. So I'm trying to figure out a way to get the water to run, and then I get a broom, and I start sweeping it up. Well, the, our neighbor who lives over here, um, she's pulling out in her van and she rolls down her window and she looks at me and she says, you know you're fighting a losing battle, right? <laughs> and I, I looked at her and I said, um, yeah, I guess. Uh, I, don't, I don't actually know if it's a battle I'm trying to win. And she laughed and I laughed and then she thanked me for cleaning up the area. I, I really was cleaning up my driveway so I don't know why she was thanking me but 
After a while, actually, it all kind of cleaned up and it was done. And if you were to say to me, yeah, but Jim, isn't it just going to come back? And what's the answer? Oh, yeah. I don't know if this is like the long-term solution, but I had a half hour between my, uh, you know, my time to kind of get ready, coming back from staff retreat and having supper with Andrea and just had a few moments. And I just thought, you know, before I head over to Olive Garden, I probably should stop and have an opportunity to, to, to kind of clean this up. And I, I just, I couldn't help but think the rest of the time that I was sweeping, like, what was I actually trying to do? And um, I, I realized that this is a pretty valuable lesson. You can use it anywhere in life. If what you're trying to always do is, is win a battle, you probably won't do much. You'll probably just kind of go in, watch television, because you're not going to win that battle. And I, I really have to, I have to think about that. I mean, I, I think some of you as parents, right, look at your kids. And can you imagine if Andrea's like cleaning up Maxwell, you know, his diaper's dirty. There she is cleaning up the diaper. And I said, you know, you're fighting a losing battle, right? He's just going to do it again. Right? You're feeding your kid, eight years old, always hungry. You know you're fighting a losing battle, right, babe? They're always going to be hungry. It really made me think, like, am I fighting a losing battle or am I not? Is this a waste of time? When I lived in Missouri, we lived, we had this, this house and there were, um, it was rightly named, we lived on Forest Drive right off of Red Oak. So there were lots of trees where we lived and probably 160 or so oak trees just around our house. And every year, leaves everywhere. And I loved it. And I would get up with my blower and it would take me, sometimes it drove Andrea crazy, it would take me days to just blow these leaves. And I would blow them and I would blow them and I would get everything done after like eight hours of leaf work. And then the next morning I would wake up and what? Leaves everywhere. And there were times where I just thought, like, am I wasting my time? And then I began to realize, I kind of like raking leaves. Like, I kind of actually, I kind of like this. I kind of miss doing it. Now, you might say, that's weird or that's crazy. And I, I, I'm not even asking you to like this. But I, I began to realize, like, this, this is the connection, okay? I need to go thank my next-door neighbor for this thought. Um, can you imagine if Jesus said, I want you to come and follow me? And, and, and I bet you the devil looked at him when he said that to Peter and to James and to John. I want you to come and follow me and to Matthew and to you know, Judas Iscariot. I mean, he's got this mess, ragtag bunch of guys. And I, I, I don't know if it happened, but I just wouldn't be surprised if the devil said to Jesus, you know you're fighting a losing battle, right? Like even when you think about like what maybe God is doing in your life, do you ever feel like you're fighting a losing battle? I guess you have to stop and just think like, what am I actually trying to do? Like, I don't know if I'm trying to solve it all. I really do. I mean, I had some ideas about what I'm going to do next year to make it a little bit easier. Kind of try to maybe be a little more intentional and trying to make sure that the grass or that, that builds up here, maybe talk to them about putting some cement kind of in that area so that the runoff goes a little bit easier. I mean, there's lots of different things that I can do. I don't know if I'm just trying to fi fix it because on the one hand, I think it's kind of a good lesson. I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's good to just get your hands dirty, isn't it? Like, I'm not trying to not work, actually. Like, I don't mind a little work. And when my kids are a mess, physically, or my kids when they're little, right? Or if my kids are a mess spiritually, like, maybe I should just go, this is what it means to be a parent. So have you ever looked at your spiritual walk 
which is really just your life, by the way. It's not like some special thing. It's your life. And have you ever just felt, in terms of your time with Jesus Christ, yeah, like, I think what I'm dealing with here is, is just a losing battle. I don't know what I'm accomplishing here. I think that it's good for you to just stop and ask the question, like, A, do you enjoy the pursuit of Jesus? Do you enjoy the pursuit of him? Do you enjoy um, the difficulty sometimes of it? Do you enjoy uh, just with, with, with personally, I think it's good for us to always begin in a way, not selfishly, but get the Jesus described, take the, 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 the plank out of your own eye before you deal with the speck in somebody else's. So that concept, right? Is it maybe good for us to just stop and ask, okay, so what, God, what is God doing in my life and I'm not gonna give up and I'm not gonna grow weary of doing good. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna have that mentality. I'm not just gonna look at, if it rains tonight, I'm not gonna get up tomorrow and be mad. I don't, I'm not even gonna think that I wasted my time, actually. So part of it is learning to enjoy doing some things, okay, by the way, learning to enjoy that. I think I would, I would recommend it. Like if not, then move, right? Let's be honest, right? If I really hated this, if you're smart, you would look at me and go, well, then move. Like, if you really hate this, then move. Don't let it poison you, right? Pick your, pick your struggles that you're gonna have and then move. No, actually, I don't wanna move. I'm kind of good with this, this problem that I have. And it's good for me to use this even as an example to just not give up in other areas of life. What we're gonna do tonight is we're gonna look at two things. We're going to look at what are those characteristics of Jesus' followers? What are they? And we're going to look at them because we now have this new identity. So we're really not talking about any of this, but we're really talking about what it means to follow Jesus. And, 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 and basically, when you look at it, we've moved from unsaved, lost, damned. We've moved from unsaved to saved. And at that point of salvation, which is much bigger, we talked about this last week, right? It's not just being justified. It's now in the process of sanctification. And then one day, complete, complete reconciliation with God. Body, soul, spirit, mind, just new heaven, new earth, kind of that level. So we've got this mystic union. We've got now, as saved people, we've got union with Christ. Union with Jesus. And in that union, there is this new self. Now, what does that actually look like? And so we probably know this, and I'll, I'll give you a number of different texts as we look at it. There are a couple of characteristics, a number of them. And, and by the way, as I sat down, I thought, you know, I could either come up with like a hundred of them or I could come up with some. And so just kind of kept breaking it down and breaking it down and bringing some together and which ones seem to be more important than others. And so this is not an exhaustive list. Consider me for just a little bit tonight, um, kind of in the spirit of the Apostle Paul, when he does lists in the Bible, be very careful reading them like they're exhausted. They're more representative. And so, by the way, whatever Jesus says in Matthew, 5, in, uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, that is what I'm describing here. And so if I've missed something that doesn't fit into any of these categories, follow Jesus and not me, okay? But these, I think, are the, are the general ideas about what it means. So we're still under the identity umbrella. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then these things should become two things, one, like evident to you. They should become evident to you. Like you should be able to, you should be able to see them. Uh, I, I, was, I, was, I was reading on, um, uh, on social media today a statement by, give me a second. I can't remember who it was. 
But basically the point was this, that if you are, if you confess like allegiance to Jesus Christ and yet you have no like desire, like inner desire to really follow Christ, then you really shouldn't have any assurance that you are now in Christ. So let me, let me say that again. If you at some point in time have expressed uh, uh, a, a, a desire to, to believe in Jesus, and yet you have no like desire to follow him, if you have no desire for him, then he says this, I'm trying to think of who it is, it's kind of escaping me right now, but there should be, or what, what you're no longer allowed to have is like the assurance that you are in Christ. Meaning that a desire for Jesus, a desire to know him, a desire to follow him is a natural byproduct of putting your faith in him. And, and, I, and again, I'm not saying, oh, you have to have that or you're not saved. No, I'm just saying it's kind of like a pulse is a natural part of being alive. Right? You can't like generate a pulse, right? You, I mean, I have no ability to kind of work a pulse. But if I don't have a pulse, then you're telling me I have to have a pulse to be alive? Well, kind of, but I'm not, but you really can't make one. Like it's just a sign of what living looks like. And the same thing with Jesus as we're going to kind of look at a number of these texts. Let me, let me also say this. I'm, I'm, there are some, some Bible teachers, and I'm sure a num- number of them exist in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Don't have to go to New York City or to California to deal with some bad theology. No, it's all around us, okay? So, and if I ever preach this bad theology, that's where you ask me to leave, okay? Tom always, always rejoices, and this is why I love you, brother, <laughs> I mean, I mean that. You know I mean that. So here, here, is, here is some really poor theology. And when you begin to realize it, these are different ways that we would describe what it means to be, uh, what it means to be Christian, what it means to be like, a, again, these are all these different terms. What does it mean for me to have union with Christ? What would you call me? So the word Christian is just kind of a phrase. They were first called Christians at Antioch, the book of Acts tells us. It's actually a word that is very seldom used. This is probably one of our most popular words, right? Are you a Christian? That's what we mean by this, right? Are you Christian? Are you saved? Are you Christian? But it doesn't appear very often in the Bible, but it does appear a couple of times. And the word means what? Do you remember? Little Christs. It means that I somehow associate myself with Jesus, okay? So that's a, that's a word for us. A disciple is not just the 12, it's not just the 120, it's not just the 500, it's not just a disciple, literally, um, kind of comes from a particular Greek word, is somebody who is a follower. A disciple is somebody who is looking at somebody else and saying, listen, like, I want to I wanna go after you. I want to take my life and I want my life to model your life. And so that's why Jesus would not only issue an invitation to Matthew, Mark, or no, not my, Matthew, Mark, I'm doing the wrong list, to Matthew and to John and to Peter and to Andrew and to Bartholomew and Nathaniel and Thomas. And so he doesn't only do that to them, but there's a more general call to people. And some come up to him and they say, I'd like to follow you, but I'm kind of busy right now. And what does Jesus say? Well, hey, that's great. I mean, I'm here for you. And whenever you find the time, just know I'll always be here for you. Like, you do know your Jesus doesn't say that. What does he say? Hey, listen, like, if you don't have time for me, then you're not worthy of me. And that is so offensive to us. But I I want you to think about this. What is more offensive? That you would look at the king of the universe and go, I don't have time for you? Which is more offensive? That one? That you would tell the king of the universe, you don't have time to get him into your schedule or vice versa. 
I'll be honest with you. It's a no-brainer to me. It is far more offensive to us to say to God, I don't have time for you, than for God to say, like, you don't get it. And so the idea of a disciple is somebody who is a follower, which is a little Christ. These words, I don't even want to try to say they're synonyms, but they are describing the same being, okay? A believer. Um, The believers, this is a phrase that would be used. So you have, uh, to believe, by the way, is to put your trust in. That's what it means. Not mental assent. It's not, I have an idea, so I'm a believer. It's 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 not a knower. Right? Although you do know Jesus, but it's not, it's not an ideal or right? It's not this, like, I have an idea about God. That's not what it is. It's truly a believer, which means someone who has put their trust in. Are you a believer in? And then you could, you could put your list after it. No, actually, I'm a doubter of that. I'm actually a non-believer of that. I don't believe that. Like, I don't put my trust in that. I don't put my hope in that. I don't build my life around that. That's what it means to be a believer. It doesn't mean, do you go to church? Really, there's no, like, category for churchgoers. No. It's, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe he is the Messiah? Well, yes. So you're living in according to that. By the way, be very careful of going, so you're saying perfectly, never chase that rabbit. Okay? Because I... I don't think you're perfect. You know you're not perfect. I don't think I'm perfect. You know I'm not perfect. So don't go to crazy town. Are you a follower of Jesus? Or are you a believer in Jesus? Are you someone who trusts him? Who puts your hope in him? Puts your faith in him? That's what a believer actually means. Which is, by the way, just like a disciple. I mean, you only believe in Jesus uh, or you'd only follow him if you believe in him, and you'd only believe in him if you'd follow him. It's kind of like, it, it's both and. So this word here is another word, followers. The word followers is sometimes used, sometimes it's just a translational issue because these are very similar words. So a disciple is a follower. So that's what it is. Okay, it's not a, it's not a different degree. It's not, now these people, they're like stage three, and this probably is stage one, and these people are stage four, and this is stage two. So first of all, you become, you know, like a believer. Like you just have ideas in your head. If anybody ever preaches this to you, just say, I get what you're doing and it's not cute. It's actually leading people astray. These aren't stages. You go from believer, then you become a Christian, and then you become a fall, and then, then you're a real disciple. That's not, no, 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 no. There is something known as progressive sanctification. I believe in that. Happens to this one great big category. There's, uh, there's another phrase that's actually used in the Bible, maybe even others, but there's another phrase. You know, what, you know what they like to call them? People what? People of the, people of the way. I love that. People of the way. Think about what that means. That's why Paul would say, I want you to walk in a manner worthy. The, the idea to walk is the idea to live. And so to be a Christian is to live in a, in a manner worthy. And again, if you're not living in a manner worthy, I'm not asking you to try to live like that so that you can get saved, right? That's not how we believe it works. You can't, you can't moralize, you can't have moral options and then win the heart and the plan and the purposes of God. No, that's actually not how it works. Jesus is the gateway. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the one. 
And Jesus, what he has accomplished for us, then shapes us. And when we believe who Jesus is, and we believe that he is the only path to God, that he is the only door, when we believe that he has died for our sins, when we believe that he is the one has made reconciliation with us through his blood, when we get that, then we are invited into this relationship with him, which looks like this. And so, again, there has been this mentality that exists within the church, sadly, beginning in the West, that began to kind of talk about categories of believers. And, and basically, the, the impetus behind it is, like, what do you do with those people that made decisions a long time ago um, who seem to have no interest in Jesus? And instead of going, well, I know what Jesus says about them. No, 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 we're not going to do that. We're not going to actually see what Jesus says about them. We're just going to kind of go, well, I think it's kind of mean, don't you think? I mean... They tried hard for like their entire grade 10 and 11 year. So I think they should be allowed in. That's kind of a rule. We have a lot of like guarantees in our country. We have a lot of, you know, just promises. And I just think, and it's actually really poor theology. Young man came up to me from another church and, 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 I, and I think he wanted to like pick a fight. And um, strangely enough, you might not know this about me, but I really don't really care too much for the fight. But I do care for the truth. And so we met for a number of times and he had little verses here and little verses there where he was trying to develop a whole way of living for Jesus that he was describing that had nothing to do with living for Jesus. He didn't have to follow him, didn't have to do anything with him. And I just kept asking him, like, where do you get that idea from? And he goes to grab some verse and whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10. Really, that's what you're hanging on? Like this verse? Have you ever read like the rest of Romans 10? Nope, just the one verse. So, okay, listen, dude, like this is, I think, gonna be your problem. And so I, finally I just kept saying, over a couple of times I just said, here's what I want you to do for me, is I would like for you to consistently build a case that will support your continual neglect and disobedience to Jesus Christ and show for me in the teachings of Christ or in the teachings of Paul where that is at some level commended or considered to be okay. Give me, give me an example. Give me like a, a, a text where it says, hey Jesus, or Jesus speaking, hey guys, like I know you're really, really busy. The truth is you don't need to follow me to the end. As long as you just have like a couple of good days in your life, we're good. Like if you can find those things for me, a, a consistent teaching, throughout the scriptures. And interestingly enough, didn't hear from him for about five years. Didn't hear from him. I mean, I, I really, I don't want to meet with you until you can find it. And I don't, I don't think I convinced him. I mean, but it was kind of exciting for him like five years later to say, hey, can we meet again? And we did. And I mean, I wasn't trying to win him to Sunnybrook. Um, he's not even here right now. He's at another church in Stillar, which is great. But I loved it when he said, you know, like Jesus actually has some pretty stern things to say to his followers, to his disciples. Um, and it's not, hey, you better do this or else I won't love you. Like Jesus never says that. Jesus never says that. But Jesus does say things like this. And if you love me, you will do this. See the difference? Like if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He leaves it in a sense to you, doesn't he? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Like if you, if you love me, um, you can't love two things. You're either gonna love the world and if you wanna love the world, you can love the world and see if it loves you back. Or you can love me, and I will love you. So which, you, you, you pick which, you're, you're gonna have to pick a master. Doesn't Jesus teach that? So there is this invitation. It's not, hey, you better earn your stripes with me, young man. 
young woman? No, it's uh, actually, here's what I've done for you. It begins with this move of Christ to us. Here's what I have done for you. Can I invite you into this relationship based upon what I have done for you because you can't, you can't start this relationship, you can't fix this relationship. I am the starter. I am the only one that can fix. You do realize I get in trouble sometimes for making the statement, Jesus is the only one who can fix things. People hate that. What do you mean Jesus is the only one who can fix things? Saying we shouldn't do anything? No, but I'm telling you, Jesus is the only one who can fix things. I will not back off of that. And if I do, you need to ask me to not be here anymore. Thank you, brother. So let's just kind of look at some of these texts. So um, number one, and I'm going to give you some some verses to to consider. The first one is um, a characteristic of Jesus, somebody who confesses and then demonstrates allegiance to who Jesus Christ is. So um, I'm going to read to you some scripture tonight as we walk through this. I can already tell I probably won't get as far as I think I'm going to get. But uh, I really want to share with you some of these scriptures. So turn to Matthew chapter 7 if you have your Bibles or let me just kind of read it over you. Jesus says to, his, to, to those who are, uh, who are following him closely, i.e. the disciples, and then those, the crowds that are at times interested in following him. By the way, if you ever wonder, like, what is it that caused 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost to just say, I want to get baptized? It, I think Jesus was, was laying the seeds for a ministry, right? And, and then they kill him, and then in the same city where they kill him after he demonstrates through his resurrection and all of the crazy events that happen in the city of Jerusalem. And then Peter, I mean, read the sermon. I mean, I think it's a great sermon, but it's not like probably the best sermon that was ever been preached. It was just so painfully obvious to those people that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And they went, wow, we got that one wrong, and yet God still loves us. I want in, right? That's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. But here's what Jesus says, and notice, notice how he's describing this, this invitation. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house. It did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew, and beat against that house, and it fell with a a great fall. So Jesus is giving this example. If you build your life upon me, you will build your life upon the rock. And everybody knew, especially in those days, the allusion to flood and the allusion to judgment. You want to build on me? Kind of, let's just back it up a little bit here. Look at, look at how he says in verse 21. I really need my glasses. I think I saw them here. Here's the scary part. I just bought like a, like a bigger print Bible and I still need my glasses. Okay, look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus is describing this. It's not what you say. Okay, and you look at the context, especially then he leads into the, if, if you really want to know if you've built on the rock or if you've built on sand, do you do what I say for you to do? Are you building your life on my teachings? That's how you're going to know. It's not any fancy thing you do. I can't stand before God and say, hey, I talked about you a lot, and it seems like some people came to you. You owe me one. Like, I, I, can't, 
I can't allow my ministry to be that which I can present before God and then somehow go, you owe me one. Like all I can do is follow Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul, follow my example as I follow Christ. He is talking about a confession to and an allegiance to that demonstrated in life. Let's back up one more thing. This is the last one we'll read on this point. Look at verse 50, still in Matthew chapter 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. So it's not like we're going to be walking around going, I can't tell who's a sheep and who's a wolf. No, you'll be able to know. Now, you need to be discerning, right? They don't come with badges, wolf or sheep. So there is a discernment. There is a a need for us to know the truth, to be dependent upon the Spirit, to be surrounded by other godly people. How many times have we said to you, word of God, Spirit of God, people of God? But it's not like you have no idea. No, Tom will know when to ask me to leave. He will know. He's not, you're not even, you won't be confused about it. You'll know. Totally believe that. So notice what it says here. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit and diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. What does that mean? That talks about, that is just describing this life that then becomes naturally, like as I was describing last week with the repent and believe cycle, it just naturally flows from this life. We confess in, in the conversion process. We confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. We confess, and I make him the Lord of my life. I make him the master of my life. I take my life and I submit it to him. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not just to believe Jesus lived, not just to believe he's a really nice guy, not, to, not for you to commit to be a really nice person like he was a nice person. There's a lot of false teaching right now going around in the world, particularly in America, where Jesus is nothing more than an incredible example for you. Jesus was nice, be nice like him. Jesus avoided temptation, you should try like that. Memorize some scriptures, throw it back in the devil's face and you'll be okay. No, you won't be okay because that doesn't deal with your sin problem. You're not a person who's got some sin, some mistakes in their lives that need to be cleaned up. You are somebody with a completely broken heart and you need it to be transformed. Do you get that? How do we do that? By Jesus. Then what does that naturally look like? We confess allegiance to and we confess and then demonstrate allegiance to who Jesus Christ is. How do we do that? Kind of that next natural step. I've already kind of bled these two together a little bit. We obey Jesus' teachings. Um, Turn over to, uh, to John's gospel. Um, and by the way, this is going to bleed into another one. I, I, I kind of, here's what I, here's what I didn't like. And I liked as I went through this, I went, Oh Jesus, I need that one for point four. He's like, yeah, but it's connected to point two. Like if, as you watch this, you're going to go, Jim, are you being redundant? No, it's not me. It's Jesus. By the way. And it's, it, I know redundant might sound bad, but when he reiterates, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's not redundancy. That's just beautiful. So I love how Jesus doesn't really care too much about Jim's outline. <laughs> I love it. So, obey the teachings of Christ. So in John chapter 15, this is what he says, beginning in verse, and we could even back up. Um, I could go all the way to verse one, by the way. Chapter 15 is a whole big section about us being united with, with, with Jesus um, and, and what that ultimately looks like. But let's look at, this, look at verse 12. 
This is my commandment. So does Jesus have commandments for his followers? What's the answer? No, he's just a grace guy. Like it's all about grace. Like Jesus says, I have no commandments for you. I have no expectations for you. Like what's hard on you is your expect, the people's expectations. And the, I'm the only one in the world that has no expectations for you. Are you kidding me? Now what's interesting is, again, remember, I want you to hear this because some people do get this wrong. Jesus isn't saying, and if you do this, I will love you. He's saying what? If you love me, you will do this. And then the question becomes, do you love Jesus? Which is a good question to ask. Look at this, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. I mean, he's literally days away from doing exactly that. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit, because he's talking about abiding in the vine, and when he, he is the vine, and when you abide in the vine, you will bear much fruit. And if you do not bear fruit, like if you're not experiencing what the Holy Spirit is doing, listen, Jesus says earlier in this chapter, he's going to cut you off and throw you in the fire. Okay? Well, I'm afraid that's going to happen. Well then, well, then abide in him, love him, follow him. That's the answer. Well, it's so hard, I make mistakes. Again, that's not the problem. You're saved by grace through faith. But that doesn't mean we don't follow him and love him. So notice this. I want to follow, or I, I basically look what I have done for you. I, I, uh, I'm better than, I'm, we're, we're closer than just a, a servant-master relationship. Uh, I'll go back to verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for servant does not know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends. For, uh, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And these are the commands. Jesus says, listen, like that's just kind of how this is going to work. That's why the Apostle Paul doesn't see the contradiction in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul is describing this way in which we love one another and we care for one another, and the fruit of the Spirit is then produced in us. And then as the chapters kind of go on, the Apostle Paul says, and then by living in this way and by loving one another, we will thus fulfill the law of Christ. Right? The law of Christ. Did you know Jesus had a law? Yeah, he's the great lawgiver. He is the great lawgiver. And, and, and Christians don't get that. They, they, they want to pit like law versus grace. No, it's, 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 it's not that simple. It is actually trying to understand, well, what is the law of Jesus? It is that law which is given to his disciples to demonstrate the fruit, to demonstrate obedience, to give us an assurance of the hope and the faith that we have. The next thing that we actually see is that we should experience transformation. We should experience this transformation. There's a couple of different texts that we could go. I don't mind dealing just with the teachings of Jesus, but I also think um, it is actually good for us to see where this takes place in other people's, uh, or in other uh, New Testament writers' lives. Um, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, where you're going to see how this becomes definitely a natural uh, implication of what the Apostle Paul is describing here. 
this transformation that we are going to see. Um, this whole chapter actually works. Let's, uh, let's do verse nine. Um, well, no, let's, let's back up actually. Let's, let's go back to verse, let's go back to verse five. So he's describing like the difference between living in the spirit and living in the flesh. Okay, so living after like my own desires or living after the desires of Jesus Christ. He says this, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh and those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, however, so he's not going, hey guys, listen, like you need to remember this and you need to try to live like this. He's assuming, and this is a good thing for us to do, like I'm assuming this is you. And if it's not, then we can have another conversation about what it means to move from here to here. But I'm just going to assume that this is who we're talking about. Like this, we're, we're not talking about how to become saved. You understand me? We're talking about this is what a saved life looks like. That's what I'm wanting you to understand. And so he goes on and he describes it. But you, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give, you life, give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In Romans 5, in Galatians 5, Paul in, in, uh, in Colossians 3, and in a number of places, what Paul is describing here is that followers of Jesus Christ, and I, I, I know you've noticed, the two words I've tried to reclaim probably about eight or nine years ago um, are these two words that, that kind of should fit with this talking about the union with Christ and then that ongoing sanctification, to be made more holy, okay, which is kind of that idea, which means to be made more in the likeness of Jesus, okay? This aspect of the Christian life is something that we work to. So you can even write down to the side Colossians 3, you can see this. And I love how Paul does it in Colossians 3, it's this. Like, set your mind on Jesus and then put to death sin. And I love the order of this. It's not put to death sin so that you can then focus on Jesus. A lot of us get that wrong. A lot of us go, man, I really need to work on my sin. And so I'm gonna stop sinning. I'm gonna start having bad thoughts and lustful thoughts and greedy thoughts. And then I'll have more time in my mind to go and think about Jesus. Right, anybody done that before? I need to stop doing bad so I can actually start doing some good. Because I only have so much time in the day. Yeah, how's that working for you? I'll be honest with you, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't. Like, I cannot kill the prideful, greedy, lustful thoughts in my mind. I cannot kill them. But you know what I've learned to do? It is impossible, I have found, for me to contain in my brain those thoughts when I think of Christ and when I think about what he has done and what he has accomplished. When I think about his love and his mercy and the Holy Spirit, which he promised me, when I think about all that he has done, it changes my heart and my mind. 
it changes me. And so it's not kill this to focus on him. It's focus on him. And by that, you'll learn to put these things to death. It's like every other thing in my life. Whenever I want to, um, to, to try to look thinner, it's not just a matter of not eating certain things. It's about filling my body with the right things. It's about getting off the couch and actually exercising, right? It's about doing those things which produce life. And spiritually speaking, what produces life is us thinking about dwelling upon and then in, in, in obedience responding to who Jesus Christ is. I think that obedience piece is a huge aspect of it. Notice how I wrote down three things here. Um, you know, you could, you could talk about this in a number of different ways. I, I think it's really, really critical that we recognize all of them. That there is in the Christian walk, there is a transformation of, transformation of our minds. Romans 12 describes this. Romans 12 describes a mind, Colossians, or uh, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, kind of two, 2 and 3, kind of talk about this transformation. We have the mind of Christ, he talks about. Okay, so there is this transformation of our thinking. Yesterday, or last Wednesday, we described it as the repenting and believing. To repent is to what? To change our mind. See, I used to think certain things about God and about me and about America and about my, my job and about my career and about my retirement. I used to have a, a whole way of thinking about that. And then the gospel came into my life and said, hey, you need to give up all those thoughts. And I'm like, well, all of them? Well, I don't know if there's, it's not a bad thought. Um, really? Like, it's not a bad thought? No, it's, it's kind of a nice one. Like, I'm willing to kind of share my stuff with God. But you still think it's yours? Well, yeah, it's mine. But I'll share. Like, isn't that a nice thought? Like, don't you just look at me and go, wow, Jim will share with God. What a nice guy. We do. We think that's a nice thought. I'll share my time with God. I'll share my family with God. Like, seriously, like, I'll think about it. And then, like, I'll, I'll kind of look at what God's got to offer, and I'll kind of make a choice, and then I'll, I'll let him in a little bit. Like, how is that not the most gracious and nice thing in the world? That's nuts. That is so contrary to the gospel. That's not what the gospel says, but that's what a lot of Christian people think it is. I need my mind transformed. I need my mind turned upside down. I need my mind, and, and, but it's not just the mind. I mean, um, I, was, I was looking at a young couple not that long ago. Andrew and I were sitting down and meeting with and talking with, and one of the dangers of love when you're young is that the heart wants what the heart wants, and it's not just when you're young. Like, the heart wants what the heart wants. And so it's not just the mind. I can't tell you the number of people I've just sat down and said, come on, you know this is wrong. Yeah, I know, but it's kind of hard to stop myself. Come on, think about it. Oh, I, listen, I promise you, in your office, I'm totally committed to this. <laughs> Problem is I leave, right? And, and I, prom I don't want to live with any of you, but the one right there. Raise your hand, babe. You're, my, you're mine. So I'm, you and I together. But other than that, I don't want to live with any of you. But you know what I mean? How many of you have like had this like incredible commitment and you're in and then all of a sudden your heart wants what the heart wants, right? So one of the things that the Bible describes, Romans 5, Romans 8, uh, Galatians 5, Galatians 6, it, it's actually describing, and this is the part that I'm, I'm, I'm becoming more comfortable with, is instead of just giving you a whole new set of rules, instead of me just focusing on the put to death, now, and, and, and by the way, I could also focus on trying to make you, like, focus on Jesus. And I'm beginning to realize, wait a second, I'm doing the role of the Holy Spirit here. I can't make you focus on Jesus. I can't make you put sin to death. I can't make you do any of that. 
All I can do, and I love this about God and me, is my job is to bear witness. Bear witness to what the scriptures say. Bear witness, hopefully, and if not, please kick me out. Um, I need to bear witness to the truth of this in scriptures and in my life. That's what I need to do. And then we'll see what you do. Like my new favorite thing to say to people is when they're going, yeah, I really want to do this. I love to go, oh, we'll see. Like, we'll see. What do you mean we'll see? No, like I, I know. Like if you think about it, like we always get like what our heart wants most. There's a great book called um, You Are What You Love. Is that right? Is that is Paul right? Is that right? Isn't that James? For some reason I'm getting it. He's, he's got another one that's... Anyway, but he tells a story of a book, and I've not read this particular book, but he tells a story of a book where the whole novel is about that there is this room, and, and in this room is like your greatest love. Can, can you imagine literally if like just right behind this door there's your greatest love and it's waiting for you, and you'll be able to have it? Okay, and so I want you to come over because whatever right now in your heart, whatever it is, you are about to meet your greatest love. Now, by the way, I know you, if I say what's your greatest love, like what's your greatest love, I mean, hopefully we would all say who? Jesus, okay? It's not like what you think maybe is your greatest love, it's what your true greatest love is. And it's right behind the door. You wanna see what it is? Right, and by the way, it, it, I, I forget how he tells it because I'd never even heard of this book before. But it's kind of like, and then that's it. Like, and then you're done. Right? It's kind of like the end of your life, kind of a moment. Do you still want to see what it is, or do you want some time to think about maybe what it should be? And so I guess in this book, and I, I meant to read it again this afternoon, I didn't have time. But like most people go, like I don't want to know. Like I'm really afraid that what what I really believe my greatest love is might be something other than Jesus because as much as I love Jesus, I think Andrea, I think I might love her more. And I, although I, I think I, when I want it to be Jesus, I think I love being a pastor more than I love Jesus. Like I really do. Like I think I get a bigger kick. I think I get better like satisfaction. I get better, like I don't think it's Jesus. I think it's like my job. Or I think it's, do you want to look through the door? And I, I love that challenge because it really causes me to stop. And, and, and by the way, your will and having the right will is not what saves you. Can I say that again? Having the right will is not what saves you. But after being saved, your will is transformed. Do you see the difference? Your will is transformed. And so what I'm challenging us on is to recognize the need for us to just stop and say, okay, listen, like my, my mind and, and my heart and my will, all of these find their meaning and their purpose in Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Obviously, to, the love of, uh, to love other Jesus followers, if you've noticed, um, I love to use that phrase instead of just Christian. Um, when I'm preaching, I usually use the phrase Jesus followers. And that's because I think the word Christian so often just means like I was born in Iowa and my parents went to church. 
And I kind of want to kind of just step out of that a little bit. I'm not afraid, no, hear me, I'm not afraid to use it. I just, to me, it's, it's harder for, for young people particularly to avoid just the implications of Jesus follower. I love kind of catching people off guard. Are you a follower of Jesus? Like, what do you mean by that? Like, I mean, like, there's, you know who Jesus is. And they let, yeah, I knew. Like, do you follow him? Do you wake up and, man, I want to follow him. I want to know who he is. Like, I'm, that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to just kind of follow Jesus today. Wherever I go, I'm going to follow Jesus. And I'm like, wow, that's so weird. And I'm like, no, that's actually what it means to be what you think a Christian is. Like, what did you think a Christian was? Well, I don't know. Somebody who went to church and kind of, you know. No, I don't know. Tell me. It's funny how they go, well, you know. <laughs> I love saying, I don't know. You tell me. It's amazing how much is actually there, particularly in the biblical text. So to love other Jesus followers. Um, I'm just going to give you a text because I'm not going to get as far as I'd like, but I definitely want to get through this top, the, the, the one side of the sheet tonight. So to love other Jesus followers, write down 1 John chapter 4. And you could actually write, interestingly enough, um, one of the reasons why I've only used, I think twice, I've only used the 1 Corinthians 13 text at a wedding. How many of you, when you hear 1 Corinthians 13, you think of your spouse? Love is patient, love is kind, love is good, it does not. Sure. You know that wasn't written for a marriage ceremony. And if it was, it was the marriage ceremony between us, the bride, okay, um, and Jesus. But ultimately, it's like, this, this will get weird, but it's ultimately how the bride responds with the rest of the bridal body. It's written for the, for the body of Christ as the bride of Christ. It's written for, this is how Jim and Tom relate. This is how, this is how Bill and Jim relate. This is how Jim and Kay relate. Okay, that's kind of what 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 13, the love is patient, love is kind, love is good. I know you could just look, you know, ring on your finger and think, oh, I really need to love Andrea like that. Sure. But, you know, I, I need to love all of you like that. I need to not remember the wrongs of any of you. I need to be patient with all of you, and you need to be patient with me. Like, this is what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why there really is no, there's no, like, uh, this isn't an optional issue. John says, talking about even the needs of believers in, in 1 John 4, um, I love how John sees it as a natural implication, probably because he's the one who writes the gospel of John chapter 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. This is my commandment to you that you would love one another. And John says that how can someone, and he's meaning this really seriously, how can someone say they love God who they do not see and then not love their brother who they do see? His answer is you can't. You can't you can't say you love God and then not love your brother or your sister in Christ. And that specifically means when they have a need and you choose to not care for them, love is not an emotive movement in your heart. Love is a natural action. When Andrea says, I want you to love me, she's not going, I want you to feel things about me. No, she's talking about for me to not just think about her, but respond to her and to put her interests above my own. I mean, she's got a long list of things, and she should have a long list. Paul has a long list of things that love is. He doesn't say love is beautiful, and it's sweet, and it's like bunnies, and, um, and, and, and like Maine in the fall. That's what love is like. You know, he doesn't do that. It's like a walk on the beach and the warm sand between your toes. That's what love is. No, he doesn't. It is long-suffering. That's what love is. Did you know that? Love is long-suffering. Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> 
I know, but it's what love is. It's what love is. So, you guys get it? We need to be, we need to love other Jesus followers. So here's my point, here's my point. Like that is our identity. So I hope you, you're getting, like all of these things are your identity. Is your identity wrapped up in naturally and normally loving the body of Christ? When you think of the church and the body of Christ, does it just cause you to want to care for, to come alongside, to encourage and to love and to nurture? You know all those feelings that you have for the people that you quote unquote love? Like just don't stop there. That's kind of what it is. Like it is so easy for me to look at my kids and to love them. It's so easy for me to look at my wife and to love her. For some of you, it's easy for me to look at you and to love you. But God is saying, I know, Jim, and then what I need you to do is keep on going. Well, why? Like, why? Because I have loved you. Because I died for you. Oh. So then, like, so what you're telling me is, like, the way you love is the way I should, which, by is that not the biblical model? We're to love like who? We're to love like God loves. You know, you got to put on, you know, like your big boy girls in pants and a real serious seatbelt to kind of deal with that. That's, that's crazy, heavy stuff. We are called to love like God loves. And then lastly, this is, this is, this is obviously another big one too. And hear me, it's not like you can say, well, can I just do those four and then kind of call it good? Is, is, tell me this last one. I, I don't mind if you use all of the names for this, but this last one is kind of like a whole different level, Right? Like this last one's more like preachers and missionaries, right? No, no. Like I, I hope you know that. I think, again, you're the best that this church has. We all know that, right? You're the, you're the, you're the, you're the faithful ones. Um, so it's not even just something that those who go to WNS have. It's not just that. It's anyone who enters the baptistry enters the ministry. That's, that's what it is. So this isn't like the, the, the tier two level. This isn't like the, the ultimate, that final step. You know, like, I mean, I, I come to church and I kind of do my thing and then one day I'm gonna really take this like super seriously. No. Now, you, hopefully you'll grow in what it means, but here's, here's what I've written down. To embrace and then integrate, so embrace it. I'm, 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 I really do. Like, I don't, I don't regret this. I don't just try to fit it in. Like, I embrace it. I embrace the mission of Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, we all embrace it in different contexts and in different ways. You all don't embrace it like I embrace it. I'm not called to embrace it like you embrace it. That's not my job. My job is not, we're not called to embrace it in the exact same way. No, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter four that God has called some to be pastors and some to be teachers and some to be prophets and some to be apostles and some to be evangelists. So we embrace the mission according to the, to the, to the favor that God has given us and the call that God has put on our lives. But every single one of us in terms of how we embrace it and how we integrate it, that is the same. We're just called to live out the application in different ways. What is the mission of Jesus Christ? So let me just close with this. The mission of Jesus Christ is to make himself known. To make himself known. His offer of salvation, and then more than that, okay, and his kingdom that has come. 
That's what it means. So it's a little bit of like going back to square one. It's a little bit of like, okay, so after I've gone through this whole process, and as I'm, I'm beginning and I'm, and I'm doing all these things, and by the way, these things are natural and normal, and if they're not, then we need to talk. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you right back to the beginning. Well, let's, start, let's start again where Jesus, who Jesus was. But then we go back missionally, and we say, yeah, but we're not the only ones. And we are in that sense, like inclusive. We are totally inclusive. There is no one, do you understand this? Are you ready for crazy? There is no one who could walk through that door or join this fellowship who by their past or by their gender or by their, the color of their skin or their, I mean, there is nothing that can separate them from God's invitation. Do you believe that? I mean, I'm telling you, I totally believe that. And if not, Tom's gonna kick me out, right? So that's what it means to embrace and then to integrate the mission into my life is that everywhere I go, in the context to which God has called me, okay? So you don't have to all become pastors, okay? But you do all need to be Christian, need to be followers of Jesus. You need to embrace the mission and the kingdom of God so that others know the truth about who Jesus Christ and they have an invitation to join this crazy, revolutionary, upside-down world-causing hope. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you see how it's so much more than you want to get saved? Saved from what? Well, you know, hell. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 can I tell you how glad I am that I'm not going to hell? Incredibly glad. You know, I don't even really think about that anymore. Because Jesus didn't save me from hell. He saved me from the wrath of God. But he saved me from that for his glory. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. And for that, I just want to do everything that he has asked me to do so that I can experience by his power, for his glory, and by his spirit, the life that he has called me to be a part of. Okay? Those are my final thoughts. Um... Two minutes early, but I only got through half the stuff. Eh, we'll call it a win-loss win. Love you guys. Uh, we will actually see you on, uh, on Sunday. Let me, let me just challenge, and maybe a lot of you already have. I really want to encourage you. We have two more weeks where we're going to be doing the compassion stuff. Um, be excited about meeting a young man named Jonathan from the Dominican. Um, he'll be coming into town on Friday. So looking forward to it. We've actually set apart some time at the end of our service for him to share his full story. Um, and so we're going to kind of change a little bit of the order of things on Sunday. Uh, but I really want you to hear, um, I don't know about you, but I get so encouraged when I hear his story is about Jesus. It's not about escaping from poverty. It is such this crazy Jesus story. And so if you ever wonder, like, is there a God, which some people do, these stories are, to me, the greatest witness that God is alive and he is going to share it with you on Sunday. So come hear the gospel. Come share the Lord's Supper with your brothers and sisters and uh, be praying about sponsoring young children in the Dominican like Jonathan. Love you guys. See you then.